right, well, tonight, um, I actually had given thought to this a couple of weeks ago during our annual business meeting. And we have that meeting, and we get up here and we talk about uh, the, the goodness of God and how He has blessed us throughout the year and the ways that we have sought to invest the things that He's entrusted us with. And I'm always impressed in that meeting um, just at the generosity of, of the Lord's people. And, you know, when the church first started 21 plus years ago, I mean, it was a shoestring kind of budget just to kind of manage what was going on and, and how to take care of, of what we've been entrusted with. And over the years, just to see how God has abundantly blessed us as a congregation, it's always encouraging to me. Uh, it's, it's rather mind-boggling to come in here sometimes, this building, and see what, what the Lord has done and blessed us with. And not just the, the material building, but what goes on in this place week after week. Uh, sometimes I'll take people for a, a tour of our campus. I almost hate to call it that, but different buildings. And I go over to the Heritage Building and I show them where the teens meet. And I say, oh yeah, we used to meet as a church in here. And they're like, what? You're kidding me. And um, then I think, you know... It wouldn't be possible to, to be able to reach the people we have and see the things that the Lord has done in people's lives had we really not had this space and this place that God has blessed us with. Sometimes I'll walk over here from my office and I'll walk downstairs and I'll think of the young people in those classrooms and the little ones in the nursery and, and just pray that you know, they would be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I think of that big fellowship room and, and how uh, we get to utilize that where before we had no space for that. I mean, remember cramming in the basement over there and not being able to hear anybody, you know, and it's just, uh, and, and I, just, I just think of the, the, all the ministry that happens in this building and what a blessing that is, but, but that happens because of the sacrificial, generous giving of God's people. Then I was looking at the budget that we most recently passed, and uh, to think that annually $35,000 or so is what we give to support missionaries who take the gospel overseas, some in very dark places. Um, $35,000. And I think that's an amazing thing to me to be a part of, and it truly is a blessing. But then again, I think, but that's because of the sacrificial, generous giving of the Lord's people. And tonight, what I really want to do, just kind of reflecting on that business meeting a couple of weeks ago, is I just want to encourage you and challenge you with the fact that you are making a wise long-term investment. Some people would see, well, why would you give so much money to what goes on here at church? Why would you give $35,000 to overseas missionaries? Why, why those kinds of priorities? And I just want to remind us that that is a very, very wise, long-term investment. And I think the Lord had something to say about this in a parable that he told in Luke chapter 16. So, in fact, our Lord had a lot to say about material wealth and how we use material things. And when we come to Luke's Gospel in the 16th chapter, we're introduced right at the head of this chapter 
to what is commonly understood to be one of the most difficult parables of our Lord to interpret. There are a lot of challenges with this parable. Uh, for one, where does the parable end? Some people says it ends at the end of verse 7. Some people says it ends in the middle of verse 8. Some people says it goes all the way down through verse 9. Um, where does it end? Uh, the other question, we're going to read it in a minute, will be what is this manager doing? This guy who's like going to all these people that owe these debts and, and making them not pay the full amount. What, what's he doing? What's that all about? And why is he commended in verse 8? And then who are the friends being referred to in verse 9? So there are a lot of interpretive details in this parable that are difficult to understand. Uh, but I think working through it tonight, we'll be able to understand the general perception of the parable and what is the general message. And the intent is to be an encouragement to you tonight who so faithfully given to the Lord and really sought to be long-term investors. So let's go ahead and read the parable tonight. Luke 16 and verse 1. He, that is Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commanded or commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If anything's clear in this parable, the parable is certainly about a believer's use of material things and how those material things impact eternity. We are all material and spiritual beings living in God's material world. 
We are primarily spiritual, made in the image of God. We possess physical, material bodies and therefore have physical, material needs. And God's good creation to us materially is a blessing to us. God intends us to enjoy good health as he gives it. The use of some time for leisure treasure and money that he blesses us with, abilities and influence. These are all good gifts from God, and God intends them to be enjoyed by his people, but sometimes those things become ends in themselves. They become the most important thing. And our question tonight is, how do you then view God's good gifts? How do you view the material blessings that God has blessed you with? And more so, what is your investment strategy with those things? Well, tonight I want us to get this. You must purpose in your heart to use the temporal things entrusted to you to obtain eternal dividends. This is what is being expressed in this parable. And while there are interpretive questions, I think that much of it is clear. And you'll see that as we work our way through this parable. Is that each of us as a believer must purpose in our heart, that's where it begins, that we will use the temporal material things entrusted to us by God to obtain eternal benefits or eternal dividends. How is that the case? Let's notice some things first of all about this parable. I want you to note a description of the characters. Look at verse 1. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, says, There was a rich man who had a manager. We're introduced to this rich man. And when we think rich man, we might have an idea in our minds, but I think we should be thinking in terms of wealth in the, in the, in the sense of perhaps Bezos' wealth. This is a very wealthy man. We know he's very wealthy. He's, he's not a small businessman that has an operation and is connected to all points going on in that operation. This is a man that's so wealthy, he has people managing his business affairs, and he himself isn't even aware that there's a problem or maybe there's some kind of embezzling going on until somebody else in the company comes to him and says something. He's that far removed because he's very, very wealthy. Well, this man has a manager, this rich man. And according to verse 1, he is a manager, that's a steward, it's someone who has charge of his affairs. He doesn't own the things, but he is responsible for overseeing these things. And he himself is a man of refinement. I always kind of chuckle what he says in verse 3. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. He says, I'm going to lose my job. What am I going to do? I'm not going to break my back digging. I'm too ashamed to sit on the corner with a sign and beg. He's a man of refinement. He's a man as well who has known the good things that can come his way because it's certainly of his generous owner, this man for whom he works. And for all intents and purposes, he was at one time a trusted friend of this wealthy man. This very wealthy man seemed to entrust him freely with these things. 
However, that trust was broken. And it was broken in this way. We're told in the end of verse 1 that charges were brought against this manager to the rich man that this manager was wasting his possessions. We don't know what that is. It may have been embezzlement. It may have been padding his own pocket. Uh, We don't know, but somehow he was unfaithful in what he was supposed to do. And so you have this accounting by the landowner. You have these two characters, and now there's the accounting by the landowner. That's the end of verse 1. And look at verse 2. This landowner, this rich man, called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. He got caught. The report came, and evidently he did his homework and researched the facts and found out that it was true. This man was dishonest. Therefore, he says, you no longer have a job. It's almost like perhaps there was an IRS audit. And that came against this man, and now he realized that he is stuck and he is caught. And he's going to lose his job, and likely in that time frame, he would lose his residence, because certainly that was a part of his being a manager of this wealthy man's estate. So now he's going to be out on the street without anything. And so here's his solution in verse 4. I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So that I have a plan B, something to fall back upon. And here's his plan, verse 5. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. Now, do you have a, uh, a note in your Bible that tells you how much that is? My Bible, when I look in the margin, it says about 875 gallons. That's a lot of oil. That's how we know this was a very wealthy landowner as well. The size of these debts, the the leverage he had to loan this kind of of fortune. So this man owes eight to 900 gallons of oil, and the manager says to him in verse 6, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. You owe eight to nine hundred gallons. Sit down and write out a bill that you're going to pay back four or four hundred and fifty gallons of oil. How would you feel about that deal? Would you take that deal? If you're the one paying, would you take that deal? Absolutely, right? Half? I mean, you know, think of your mortgage. If I pay half my mortgage, I'll be done with it. Right? This is the kind of deal that's being offered. And so he does that. He does the same thing again. Look at verse 7. He says to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. Again, there's uh, a marginal reference in my Bible, and that tells me it's between 1,000 and 1,200 bushels. And basically that does nothing for me because I don't know how much a bushel is, do you? I can't even picture that. I don't know. All I know is it's the same kind of deal or a similar deal that the first guy got with the oil. So he owes 1,000 or 1,200 bushels of wheat, and now he's going to write out eight or 900 bushels. And what this manager is doing, he has foresight. He knows what's going to happen to him. He's going to be put 
out. He will no longer have a place to live. And so in foresight, he begins to prepare for the next step. He's preparing for his future when he's put out of the management position. That's why you have the commendation of the manager in verse 8. The master, this wealthy landowner, commended the dishonest manager for his what? Shrewdness. Okay, now here's where the trouble lies. You read this parable and you say, this guy's a scoundrel, right? I mean, I mean, he is ripping off his, his landowner, this rich man, again, even going out the door. He's a scoundrel. And yet, this wealthy landowner commends him? Notice he says he's still a dishonest manager in verse 8. He's not commended for his irresponsibility. We know back in verse 1, he knew the man was wasting his money, and he said, your management is over. And he's not commending him for dishonesty in what happened in verses 6 and 7 when he halves these debts. He's commending him for shrewdness. What is shrewdness? Well, really it means wisdom, being wise. But it's not your typical word for wisdom. It's actually a word that can mean cunning. He's he's quick on his feet. He's a fast thinker. He knows how to turn a buck, we might say. Because he was being put out of his residence and work, he, through foresight and planning, prepared a soft place to land. These debtors were no doubt wealthy men as well, and he would reduce their debt so that they would owe him a favor. And in that society, when you were owed a favor, you had better make good on it. And this shrewd manager had the foresight to see that, so in foresight he prepares for his future in this way. This is the explanation of the parable. Now, you say, well, how can Jesus use a dishonest guy like this and, and all of his corruption and cunning in this and make a good example out of it? Is this what we're to follow? And I just want to remind you that, that God himself and certainly the Lord uh, would occasionally use evil things that we're familiar with to illustrate truth without praising the thing itself. For instance, how many times in the scripture do you read things like the Apostle Paul saying, be a good soldier, fight a good fight? Is it good to fight? Well, some things are worth fighting for, but Paul's taking that theme of war and conflict in a fallen world, but he's using it to illustrate something. Think of slavery. The Apostle Paul talks about slavery, being a slave of Christ. Is slavery something noble and good? No, but it was reality in the first century, certainly, and Paul uses that, and he says, he uses an example from it and says, I am a slave to my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, the Lord is taking a poor example. You can learn even from a bad example. 
And, and he's taken even the, the deception of this man, but he's going to make a larger point that is a positive point. Thankfully, the Lord himself went on to interpret the parable and give us the meaning. And he does so by noting the parallels. Look at verse 8 and notice the parallels in the text. In my own understanding, I think the parable ends at the uh, middle of verse 8 when he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. I think the parable ends there. Now the middle of verse 8, you have the interpretation, which is this. Jesus says, for... The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus begins interpreting the the, the parable by drawing the parallels. The first is this. He makes a comparison. Who are the sons of this world? Who are they? What would you say? Go ahead, you can say it loud. Unsaved unbelievers. Really, you could, you could translate it this way, the sons of this age. The people who live solely for this age. Jesus says, you have people living solely for this age and they are very shrewd in dealing with their own time, their own generation. They know how to prepare for this age. And he contrasts them with the sons of light. Who are the sons of light? These would be believing people. These are people who have their eyes opened and illumined so that they understand this age is not all there is. There's more to come. Now, a big help in interpreting this parallel is who is Jesus talking to? The sons of the world or the sons of light? According to verse 1, who is Jesus talking to? Who does he address this parable to? See it in verse 1? His disciples. He's speaking to his followers, those that would be sons of light. And so that's the emphasis to teach them something, not sons of the world, but these sons of of light. And so Jesus brings up this comparison between sons of this world and sons of light. And then Jesus makes this observation that the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. In other words, what he says is this the people who live for the here and now, their perspective on this life, the sons of this age, they know how to prepare for this age. They know how to look forward and forecast what's going to happen in this time and prepare accordingly. Think of it this way. They know how to prepare for retirement. Very shrewd about that. Very careful about that. Very purposeful and intent about that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. This is just what Jesus is noting. The people of this age, if all you're living for is this age, then all you're planning on is accumulating all that you can so you can take your ease. Think about people in this way. Think about people in this age who exercise religiously. I'm not saying exercise is bad. But don't you know all of that is fighting a losing battle? But that's what they live for. 
How can I still look like I'm 40 when I'm 80? It's all a losing battle, but they get very shrewd and, and, and very calculated and make investments with regard to this. I thought of this the other day. I was waxing my car. I wasn't like doing the old hand wax. That's way too much work. It's the stuff you spray on and wipe it off, right? But it was still some work. It was hot out. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to have to do this again next year. What's the use? Right? But it's thinking, how can I preserve this? But it's all a losing battle. But still, it's, again, there's nothing wrong with waxing your car. What Jesus is saying is, it's true that people who live for this generation and this age, that's where their focus is, the here and now. And they have foresight and they think about that. And he says, when it comes to that, and you compare that to the sons of light, who are living not for this age, but for the age to come, how shrewd are we with regard to the internal investment? How much forethought do we give to actually investing not temporarily in this age but in the age to come and this is the comparison Jesus is making somebody has written on this and gives this little example and maybe this will help he says the scene to put it in modern terms is this Think of a recently terminated middle manager who double deals with company debtors on the main floor of corporate headquarters while the CEO sits in the boardroom upstairs. When the CEO learns what has happened, he says in admiring disbelief, I got to hand it to you. You turned a pink slip into a promotion. That's the shrewdness that's being commended in this parable, right? That's the observation. And the point that's going to be made is, if people who live for this age are so shrewd in how they use their material things, how much more should we be shrewd in using material things for eternal investment? And this is the point where we make application for the parable. Look at it with me. Beginning in verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you. You see now he's applying this. He's speaking to his disciples. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I'm going to give you the point and then I'm going to explain it. The application is this. It is wise to use your temporal stewardship to obtain eternal reward. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 9. Look what he says. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of this unrighteous wealth. What is unrighteous wealth? Is it money that has been acquired unrighteously? I don't think so. In fact, um, look down at verse 11. Jesus says, If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you what? 
true riches, so unrighteous wealth is contrasted with what? True riches. What are true riches? True riches are those which last beyond this age. They're true because they're enduring. The unrighteous wealth is that which ceases with this age. In fact, that's mentioned in verse 9 that this unrighteous wealth will ultimately fail. So what Jesus is saying is, use what you've been entrusted with in this age to make friends. How do you feel about that? You know, buy your friends? Is that a real friend? Is Jesus really commending this? What does he mean by making friends? What he means is by doing good to others. I mean, those men that received the cut rate, it was certainly good for them. But ingratiating yourself to them. In other words, using these material things to build a bridge, perhaps, of relationship for other purposes. Why would you do this? Verse 9. Make friends for yourself by means of the unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, this unrighteous wealth, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Who's the they? Who is they referring to? It's the friends of the first part of the verse. that these friends will receive you into eternal dwellings because you've befriended them by wisely using your temporal stewardship. And what will these friends do? They will receive you or welcome you into eternal dwellings. Here's what Jesus is saying. Make friends with the temporal things that God has given you to meet people's needs. That is the way to lay up treasure in heaven that does not fail. And perhaps some of those people will be converted because of your ministry to them and will go before you into heaven and welcome you there with great joy and eternal dwellings. I wrote that out very carefully. That's my paraphrase. Does that make sense? Here is what Jesus is saying. I've given you material blessings. I'm the wealthy landowner. You're a steward. Be shrewd with it. But not in this age, in the age to come. Use it now to leverage it, to make friends, to, to meet the needs of people, and build a bridge so that you can share Christ with them and give them the gospel that someday when you enter heaven, they're going to welcome you because you've sacrificially given for them. Don't worry about being a shrewd investor in this age where you can provide for a future that will only fail I'm not, telling, I'm not saying be irresponsible in that. But instead, be a really, really shrewd investor by investing in people's lives 
and use your resources to do as much good as possible for the glory of God and the eternal good of others who need to hear the gospel. So let me put it to you this way. You work hard. And you are are diligent in your work and you labor for that paycheck to meet your needs and the needs of your family and that's honorable. And it is evident to me as your pastor that beyond that, you sacrificially give to what's going on at Heritage Baptist Church. And when you do to the tune of approving a budget that says we're going to give $35,000 to people we've never met. I mean, we've met the missionaries, but the people to whom they minister, that's like writing a check and saying, whew. And Jesus says, you're shrewd. That was wise. Because you are making an investment in people who perhaps someday you'll spend eternity with. And they will welcome you because you invested and sacrificed. That's long-term investing. Why is this so important? Well, the other principle found here is this in verse 10, because we'll give an account of what has been entrusted to us. Verse 10 says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. It's talking about character, but it's saying, in the end, there will be an accounting of this, whether you are faithful and dishonest. So what God has entrusted you with materially, he wants you to be a good steward, a good manager of that, and invest that to obtain eternal reward. But the Lord knows the pull of these things upon it, upon us. So he says in verse 11, if then you've not been faithful in this unrighteous thing and managing these material things, who will entrust to you the true riches? If, if God cannot trust you with material things in this world because you just consume it upon yourself and you're not thinking long term when you get to heaven, should God entrust you with anything else? Verse 12, if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, all of our material things, who will give you that which is your own? I think the Lord is indicating by that there is ownership in heaven. Is it blasphemous to say capitalism exists in heaven? Ownership of something? This is God's plan? Ultimately, Jesus gets to the point in verse 13, and he says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't be a good steward if you're serving the money. In other words, if you're in first place and the material things are all about you, You've gotten the picture wrong. 
You can't serve both. Don't let material things rule your heart because that's where it matters. And finally, I didn't add this, but if you'll look down in verse 14, what, if, if you really live a life like this and say, you know what? All of my material possessions, I want to leverage those for eternity. I want to be able to invest them wisely that God has entrusted me with these things to advance his kingdom and his purposes. If you really live like that, and then you go about and you interact with people, they're going to look at you funny. I'll never forget, it was years ago. Uh, most of you would not know these people. And we had a man coming to our church. We were back in the Woodbury School. And uh, this man, he wasn't a, a very wealthy man, but uh, had some means. And he told me one time, he said, you know, I was sitting down with my tax guy, and we were talking taxes and, you know, how that ha is handled. And, and he says we were talking about contributions to the church. And, uh, and he said, uh, here's, here's my contributions to the church. Here's how much I give to the church. And he said, this tax guy looked at me and said, what, are you crazy? What do you get in return for that? And he said, the guy said it with a straight face. Like he wasn't, he just didn't understand. It didn't register with him. And he said it was a great chance to just tell him, I'm not living just for this world only. There's something else coming. And when you live that way, there will be misunderstanding, yea, ridicule by others. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were what? What was their heart issue? Who ruled their heart? Jesus had mentioned it back in verse 13. They're lovers of money. They heard these things, and what did they do to Jesus? They ridiculed him. That's crazy. I think they got the point, the point that I'm expressing to you tonight. And I think what they said is, that's crazy. Because in their heart, they loved money. When you live this way, expect it, you'll be ridiculed. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I give this to you tonight to encourage you. Because I know on a night like this, in the middle of July, it's kind of the backbone of the church, right? People that come out on a Sunday evening. But I also know it's you people that really sacrificially give and do so faithfully. And maybe sometimes it's crossed your mind. Wow. Be nice to put that somewhere else. And all I want to do is encourage you that you are making a wise long-term investment. Jesus said it. And so keep using the material resources that the Lord entrusts to you that you would gain eternal dividends. 
That really is the theme. You must purpose in your heart to use the temporal things entrusted to you. They are only temporary to obtain eternal dividends, the welcoming of friends. Wouldn't that be a great day to see? So I hope you're encouraged by that tonight. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed.